HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The following program is brought to you by Susty Party, an online party supply store for eco-friendly party products and biodegradable compostable tableware. For more information, visit SustyParty.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby, broadcast live to the cosmos on the Heritage Radio Network. Happy Monday afternoon, and welcome to another episode of Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Ann Saxelby. My co-host is Sophie Schlesinger. Hi, everyone. We've got Joe Galarraga in the booth, making sure everything sounds good. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. <laughs> um, and today's show is, uh, last week we talked about um, American Cheese Month, and yep. today we are going to be talking about British cheese versus American cheese. Mm-hmm. Battle royale, if you will. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, and we're lucky to have with us Kate Arding of uh, Culture Magazine. Thank you, Kate, for being here. It's a very pleasure. <laughs> Um, so, uh, as you can tell by Kate's accent, she is an expert on all things I'm British. The ultimate cheap import. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but we were just thinking of, you know, different ideas for the show. And it is kind of interesting to talk about British versus American cheese, because while there are a lot of differences, there are also a lot of similarities. So mm-hmm. we're just going to kind of go back and forth and talk about, um, what makes our cheese traditions, um, you know, the same and different in some ways. Um, so, Kate, maybe can you lead off a little bit? What What is the history of cheese in Britain? Obviously, there's a renaissance that's gone on, like there has been here, but I feel like, you know, the, the, we need a little backstory. Well, the history of cheese in Britain in a hundred words. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, really, there was, I mean, cheese has been around in the UK for probably a lot longer but, than this, but at least 400 years sort of being documented as such and things kind of came to a big turning point um, with the advent of the First World War uh, primarily because uh, the labour force just evaporated Um, obviously it went off to war and and although you know a lot of the jobs were taken 
um, by women. It, it really changed the face of the agricultural policy in the UK as a result. And of course, a lot of people didn't come back from the First World War. So there was a tremendous labour shortage after that. And the whole face of uh, rural um, agriculture and um, industry was was evolving very rapidly um, you know during the 30s the 20s and 30s um, some a lot of the large estates and, and farms were being broken up um, and then the second world war arrived and with it of course came very strict rationing so all the way along this sort of path British cheeses and especially the farmhouse cheeses which was really all there was at that point, um, was suffering. And then with the advent of the Second World War and the rationing, um, by far the majority of the milk that had been taken um, and made into cheese uh, was um, devoted entirely to uh, liquid milk because it Mm. was deemed, you know, with some reason, that that was the fastest way to get nutrition to the people. I mean, cheese cheese still was being made, but in much reduced quantities. And, of course, food overall, and, of course, those people listening who are familiar with British food history <laughs> in its all <laughs> unglorious state. Um, but uh, that, was, that was kind of a nail in the coffin, you know, for a lot of, uh, you know, the traditional British foods because of the shortages. Um, and rationing in the UK actually continued in many forms until 1954 Mm. so that was nine years after the end of the war and when that when it was finally lifted at that point what happened was that understandably the population just didn't want to look back you know they wanted to move on they wanted to forget you know everything that was all the um, hardship exactly exactly mm -hmm. and all the rationing and and the poverty and hardship as you say so the 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 feeling within the country was like look forward you know modernize you know all this stuff and sort of let's get rid of all the a lot of the old stuff I mean I'm simplifying it but that's generally what happened so and of course commensurate with that became the sort of in- industrialization of food and the rise of supermarkets which continued you know through the the 60s and the 70s and into the 80s of course and all the while, that happened incrementally, um, farmhouse cheeses were getting sort of pushed further and further onto their back burner because what happened was that essentially um, the methods of production and speed and efficiency and cheap food were eclipsing flavour. So although some of these cheeses were still being made, um, as they had been in, in the 20s and so on the flavors were nothing like the same thing and yet they were being called the same so for example um with cheshire cheese which is a traditional cheese from the northwest um i I may have got my facts my numbers slightly wrong but it was something in the in the region of 2000 producers who were in production in 1914 um and by the early 80s it was down to one Wow. And that was farmhouse production. And what was happening, though, as I say, simultaneous to that, is that factories were starting to produce Cheshire, calling it the same thing. But, of course, the price was much, much, much lower, and it bore no resemblance to the original whatsoever. And that ha- happened over many decades. So, yeah, that's how 
the sort of uh, potted history up until about sort of mid 80s as, as to where it was. And back before the First World War, I guess, um, would you say most cheeses, like, were they made, um, you, you were talking about estates and such, and that's obviously something that didn't exist as much here um, in, right. in the U.S. Certainly yeah. there were, you know, your robber barons and whatnot, but were the cheeses, were traditional British cheeses made on estates by, you know, um, people who were just sort of renting land from aristocrats, or were they um, self-made farmers, or who were it these was, people? It was a big combination of things. I mean, obviously there were some um, larger scale producers, I mean, not factory, but um, and some some of that land would have been tenanted out by the larger farms but also a lot of cheese making would just take place on the farm you know simply as a much in the same way that you'd bake bread so there was the sort of home cheese making if you like um, which was just a, a means of sustenance um, for the farmer and, and his family and maybe if they had a few extra wheels they'd sell them at the market or something like that for extra income um, but the number of real sort of commercial producers on any scale uh, prior to sort of First World War wasn't that great. Um, you know, in fact, we had a, an article in, in, the Ma- in Culture magazine that was written about a year ago by Francis Percival, um, who is very knowledgeable on, on all these things, and he charted the rise of um, a particular style of British cheese just colloquially known as the British crumblies which (laughs) (laughs) and you know the way that they came around I mean you can imagine what the texture is like but the way they came came into being was largely because it was a very slow make procedure because it had to dovetail in with all the other chores that the farmer's wife had to do Mm. so it was it was not necessarily viewed with great sort of eyes towards commercial production um but that said, there were certain farms that were producing a lot, and there's some his wonderful historical footage, for example, of the, the Cheshire cheese train, which was uh, set off from um, from the north of England, um, especially in time for Christmas. Wow. And, of course, this was a steam train, and uh, down the side it had these long banners going, Cheshire cheese train, and, and the same <laughs> for Stilton, too. I mean, so there was definitely... I mean, there was larger scale production, but not by what we today's standards. So. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. The cheese crumblies. I can't, I can't help but think. You know, I was thinking about tra- tra- different traditions, which we can get into later. But you know, the cheese crumblies to cheese curds. That's yes. something that yeah. automatically <laughs> comes to my mind. The yeah. Americans and their obsession with cheese curds. Yes, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> um, well, so I feel like you know American cheese making. Um, largely had its uh you know it was was pretty you know came from pretty humble beginnings too and then picked up a little bit when um i think when america started to trade with other um with other nations i know um Mm -hmm. there was a lot of cheese that went down to the uh caribbean islands um uh on ships um you know that were uh, that were headed down that direction, and most of those cheeses were British-style cheeses because the original settlers, you know, were of course from Britain. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I note the first cheddar factory ever was in Rome, New York, uh, in 1851. Yeah, that's right. And uh, so, of course, leave it to the Americans to take you know a, a traditional process and mechanize it. You know, 
pretty much right at the onset of the Industrial Revolution. Um, but for a while, I found it interesting that America actually exported quite a bit of cheddar cheese to Britain for a while, and it was actually quite prized. Yes. Uh, and there's a really interesting story um, that I heard from Paul Kinstead, who I believe has mm-hmm. been on your show. Yeah. And Paul, forgive me if I get this slightly wonky, but um, <laughs> but the the tenet of the story is that that of course you know the the English arrived you know and brought with them you know originally you know their cheese making recipes and cheeses and so on and set up here and then meanwhile what was happening in the UK was things were evolving quite rapidly and um, a lot of the know-how about cheddar traditional cheddar making was becoming lost and and um you know, not destroyed exactly, but it was just morphing into a lot of things. There was this complete sort of panic, apparently, in, in the 18th century that they were going to lose this thing. And in fact, some of the pilgrims or their descendants from the US came back to the UK with some of the cultures um, to reintroduce it wow. to the England. And I, I may have got that slightly wrong, but that was the general impression. So actually, we, we owe we sorry the english owe the americans a great debt of gratitude (laughs) now i have dual citizenship i don't know who i am (laughs) multiple Um, personalities exactly who am i today i'm not sure (laughs) but yeah i mean there's there's a very interesting relationship you know certainly between the uk and and the states in terms of cheese making but also as i'm sure you've may have mentioned before on the show the patterns of immigration in the u.s um largely reflect the styles of cheeses that have been made here mm, you know for example yeah. you know in, in the midwest you know you get a lot of german style and norwegian style swiss yeah exactly so california um, tons of italian and spanish style exactly, cheeses. Yeah. exactly so and it's which is completely understandable you know because people want a taste of home you know when they when they go about their daily lives you know? yeah Absolutely. Well, then we had to go and muck it all up, though, because we were exporting a nice amount yeah. of good quality cheddar. And then we started adding things like, you know, vegetable oil to it. And, uh, you know, soon this, the, you know, it was like the predecessor to craft cheese. And then it all went to hell in a handbasket. And <laughs> America exported cheese to Britain no more or in very small quantities. Um, but well, also, it's not just the Americans that messed it up. Actually, I, I, have, a, <laughs> I have a I collect some antiquarian books on cheese making and i've got a few from the late 1700s oh wow and uh what's remarkable is how little has changed in that time really apart from the fact that most people at least who are living a rural peasant sort of lifestyle would tend to eat about a pound of cheese a day well, hopefully wow. yeah but then they That's were working awesome <laughs> <laughs> i fully admire that <laughs> there's this um there's one of these books one of these books which is written by a man called william marshall who i have to say i think was rather pompous but what he did was he <laughs> he rode around england on a horse obviously and documented in enormous detail you know the goings on in the countryside and of course paying a lot of attention to dairying and cheese making and there's one part in one of these books where he refers um and it's written in old english um but this bit is in large italic letters to the crime of coloring cheese and he <laughs> says something along the lines of um thus 
It is not an act of darkness done clandestinely by the dairy woman <laughs> to de- deceive the factor, i.e. the buyer. Um, on the contrary, it's an open and known disposition. And, and what he's essentially saying is is that the, the cheesemakers are forced to colour their cheeses, which, of course, he considers a complete abomination um, because of pressure being brought to bear on them by the the distributor or the buyer you know and in turn it goes all the way back to the to the consumer so i mean nothing's changed at all (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's very true but uh it just sounds so much more eloquent when he wrote it than (laughs) than i am making it to (laughs) the crime the crime of coloring cheese yeah yeah Yeah, and i just like the image of someone riding around on a horse like checking up on all the cheese making that's happening (laughs) because it sounds like a big pain in the bum actually (laughs) (laughs) big belly and a big book yeah exactly (laughs) taking notes exactly Well, I feel like, you know, also, so we were talking about, you know, post-World Wars, um, food culture dramatically changing in Britain, and I think we can definitely say the same thing happened here. Um, That idea of, although it's funny, I don't think, you know, here there wasn't the same um, attitude of hardship or, you know, memories of hardship. People certainly lost family members during Mm -hmm. the World Wars, but I feel like here that idea of progress was a more, like, happy, shiny, you know, leave it to beaver kind of um, thought process where it was just like, why would we want to spend our time doing things like making food when we can buy this fancy machine that you plug into the wall and it'll do it for you? Well, I think that did happen as well in the UK. I mean, certainly in in the UK, they've very much looked towards America as the sort of cutting edge and, and they was much envied. I mean, I remember just even listening to my grandparents and it's like, oh, that's from America, you know. It's like, you know, <laughs> wow, you know, and um, and it was. I mean, it was, and that's what I'm saying. It was so. It was the combination of the two that was so um, seductive, I mm. think, and and wanting change and to leave this, you know, horrible past behind them, but also embrace what was sort of new and shiny, right? You know? um, and then I think also, you know, people's tastes have changed because of travel. You know, they get exposed to other. Um, other cheeses other other styles lifestyles yeah um you know so it's you know there's a constant you know natural human desire to sort of move forward and evolve try new things yeah yeah well but that's that's something i wanted to talk about too because a lot of the traditional british farmhouse cheeses um have a very similar um flavor profile to me anyways being in that they're harder cheeses they tend to be very tart and sharp um like you know cheshire lancashire um uh you know cheddars um stilton is its own is its own world um but do you think uh is there a specific reason that you can think of that um cheesemakers favored those types of cheeses or do you think it was just kind of the knowledge that was around at the time again i think there's not one answer to this I, I think climate has a huge amount to do with it and, and also the fact of, of wanting to store um, cheese during the winter you know for, for consumption um, you know when because of the infamous rain that you get there it's obviously conducive to um, storing cheese as well because you've got that high moisture mm. um, high humidity um, but you've also got the Gulf Stream, which is this weather system that comes in from the Atlantic, which which keeps the temperatures temperate, you know, but not as warm as, say, France, 
um, or at least the, the sort of not the, the non-mountainous regions. So you don't get the extremes of temperature, or at least you didn't used to, Yeah, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> that you you would get it towards the Mediterranean. So I think these cheeses, they were, they're sort of rather... I think rather um, symbolic of a British character. You know, they're rather sort of solid <laughs> and round and don't get perturbed easily, you know. <laughs> so, they have yeah. a nice bite to yeah, them. Exactly. That, that, that ironic dry. Witty yeah, dry exactly. bite. <laughs> <laughs> so I, th- I think, yes, I mean, and also many of the areas in the UK have are very, particularly in the north and the Midlands, very rich in minerals. You, so you get a lot of minerality coming through in some of those flavours. And again, I, I just think a lot of it's climate related because obviously we're talking about days pre-refrigeration. Yeah. So they were much more um, subject to the sort of vagaries of temperature and humidity than, than we are now. And then if they had to be transported from rural areas to market, which would be presumably in big cities, they would have to be tough cheeses exactly. you know, that could yeah. withstand the journey exactly. because a truckload of camemberts in the 1800s must have, you know, that would be an, an impossibility. Right. It would be a runny, stinky mess. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yes, which is why the British always mistrusted the French. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of stinky they smell cheeses. Funny. Yeah. yeah. It's foreign. It's foreign. Yeah. But so, so lead us so you've you've guided us through sort of you know the older historical um parts of british cheese making and now um can we talk a little bit more about how some of those some of those farmhouse cheeses were saved yeah. and then also sort of the influx of new cheeses being made in britain well i think the um i mean the story for me anyway sort of starts um with a man called patrick rance who was an extraordinary character who who wrote two really well one certainly very definitive book on french cheese um that's an awesome book which is an amazing book yeah (laughs) and then also a a book on british cheese which is slightly less well known but he was a tremendous champion of traditional cheese production at a time when nobody else was and during the sort of 70s and uh into the early 80s and uh, he sadly died um, at, at the end of the 80s. But uh, he met Randolph Hodgson, who um, start, founded, well, he didn't quite found, but he, he's owned and, and ran and still runs Neil's Yard Dairy. Um, and he kind of picked up the gauntlet on this, aged about 20. And he knew and worked with um, Patrick Rance. For a number of years, um, they colluded together on this project. And what they did, um, what Patrick Rance did, was he really drew Randolph's attention to the fact that a lot of these farmhouse cheese cheeses had dis- or were on the verge of disappearing. Some had already had. So Randolph, he had this tiny, tiny cheese shop. In, I mean, you can relate, I think. <laughs> yeah, no, his might yeah. have been tinier. Yeah, yeah. In that little, that it's original like one, yeah. Harry Potter. Yeah. You know, it's like exactly. you find this magical little alley. Exactly. It's just <laughs> incredible. So he he started off um, literally by going around the country and knocking on farmhouse doors. And, you know, that was how he learned, for example, about Kirkham's Lancashire, uh, which was in within weeks of going out of business as the last sort of wow. cloth wrapped uh, Lancashire that was coated in butter, um, mm. and and then also as he sort of started to go out and find these producers, 
some of them arrived you know they got word of of um what he was trying to do and in fact there's a lovely story of um the appleby family uh, who make this cheshire that i was referring to earlier um arriving down in london with a 40 pound wheel of of cloth wrapped cheshire and slamming it down as i think you would <laughs> with 40 pound cheshire <laughs> on the counter and uh, saying to randolph here try that lad you know and meaning that you know you just hadn't tasted anything like it so there were that was a very the very sort of small beginnings but the point that it kind of comes to which i think is is always worth bearing in mind whatever food we're talking about is that that a lot of the attention you know understandably gets focused on the producers because that's the sort of romantic end of it you know and that's the bit that we all kind of aspire towards Mm -hmm. i think um but you can be making the best cheese in the world or the best anything you know in the world but unless you have the other points or the other links in the chain in place i.e the retailer who's going to be an advocate for the producer and then acts as the translator to the consumer and the means and, of getting it and the from means where of getting, you make exactly it and the distributors and the educators i mean all these things have to be in alignment in order to make it work and and one can't really work without the other at least on this scale of of operations so the the reason really that at least in my mind um that the cheeses started to recover and sort of gain a toehold again in the market was the fact that the market started to exist again so it wasn't as if the people had gone away but as randolph once explained um what had happened was that the the brokers were telling um the cheesemakers the traditional cheesemakers that there was no longer a market for their cheese because it was hard to handle and it mm. lost weight and it was more expensive exactly and- all these things and at the same time they were telling the public or the retailers that that sort of cheese was no longer available so really it was the brokers um who were the evil ones evil, um, evil merchants in this in this instance there's a great tremendous progress she hastily adds yeah. so, but, but that was that was the thing and because people's um sense of of flavors had had changed because of these incremental differences over decades they had sort of forgotten that the quote-unquote Cheshire cheese that was the factory-produced version was miles away from the original farmhouse version or whatever cheese it was. Mm. So it, it sort of, once those sort of things started getting into into sync again, that was what paved the way for for the progress. So. And then and now there are all these new cheesemakers, which is very similar to what uh, we see in America. I mean, um, I would say, you know, there are probably a very small handful of cheesemakers that managed to survive from, say, the early 1900s until now in the United States. But starting in the in the 90s, really, we saw such an explosion of small artisan cheesemakers that continues to grow each year to this day. Right. And I feel like you also in Britain have... Um, quite a few new cheesemakers in addition to people who are upholding those uh, older traditions. Definitely, and for the same reasons that I just mentioned, because there was a market, you know, suddenly there was a market and there was a demand which made um, you know, for younger people well, not necessarily just younger, but you know people who were interested in producing cheese it meant that they had a viable income, 
again you know they weren't just sort of making cheese and giving it away Mm. um so that they could actually make a living you know because at the end of the day however how a sort of subsistence level one you know one has to pay the bills at some point so that was really what encouraged and and also again um you know just increased awareness um on the part of the consumer you know media had a tremendous amount or has a tremendous amount to do with it um the traveling that i mentioned earlier you know people go away and they try these things it's like ooh, you know so yeah exactly so it's um all these sort of factors come together um yeah it's it's been very exciting to watch it actually yeah yeah it's fantastic well you got to witness it in london uh with neil jardari and then witness it again with the cowgirl creamery out here in california i was just really lucky to be in the right place at the right time i mean it whereas as you said earlier you know in the uk we were trying to preserve these traditions it was also really interesting to be in the u.s and and see them essentially starting from the carte blanche you know and also because the the U.S. is much less constrained by tradition, you know, actively so, as we knew historically. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's it's really fascinating to me. I mean, aside from the, the the tendency that we mentioned earlier with the immigration patterns and so on, but you know, what what do you start? You know, what happens when you sort of throw all the cards up in the air? You know, it's it's been fantastic. You know, and and the the thing that staggers me is the just the meteoric rise of cheese here and i think i don't think that could really happen to the extent it's happened in any other country because i think the one of the things that's so refreshing and it's a cliche but it's so refreshing about the u.s is people's willingness to try new stuff whether that's somebody wanting to get into cheese making a new career a new Mm -hmm. career or, or to literally taste a new cheese during american cheese month Um, (laughs) so it's that willingness to embrace change i think which is terrific and that is different from europe i mean the europeans are getting much better at it but you know there's still that sort of ooh, it might taste funny i'm not sure about that one you know whereas americans like yeah i'll give it a try you know (laughs) it's got what on it all right (laughs) sign me up exactly well maybe um we're almost out of time which is very sad because this is a fascinating conversation and we should definitely have a part two two, but i feel like we we could leave off um you told a really interesting story. Um, Kate and I were at the Connecticut Cheese and Wine Festival last weekend, um, and uh, you told a very fascinating story about some cross-pollination, literally, between Stilton and uh, Mount Tam. So, well, uh, we thought it was cross-pollination. Which it could be. <laughs> yeah, it could have been. It could have been. But, um, yes, this was at uh, Cowgirl Creamery in 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 the early days Um, so this was probably about 1998 or 99 and um as i'm sure many people listening will know that uh, cowgirl creamery produces a range of sort of soft fresh cheeses um and one of the first cheeses that they made was this one called mount tam which is a triple cream you know Mm. bloomy rinded butter with a rind yeah it is actually it's it's very very good (laughs) and uh so at the time i was running the, the retail side there and, and Sue Connolly, one of the owners of, of Cowgirl, was making the cheese and we were sharing this tiny walk-in refrigerator, you know, so at the end of the day I'd sort of, you know, take down a display and put everything in the walk-in 
fridge and you know she would be trying to age cheeses in in bus tubs in the fridge at the same time and anyway I was I was setting up one morning and Sue came stomping across across the hallway (laughs) and there was this look of thunder on her face which she never or very rarely gets I mean it's it's like it's quite and for that fact alone it was quite alarming and uh, she said you know take a look at these and she sort of opened this bus tub and inside were these very pink not white pink mount hams and she said your stiltons because this was i just got a big stilton delivery in your stiltons have contaminated my mount hams <laughs> and uh i said oh my god you know so anyway she said i've been washing them and washing them in salt water and you know this mold won't come off and i don't know what it is and she, i mean there was steam just coming out of her ears and <laughs> and i sort of said well have you tasted it and so we did and it was of course delicious and <laughs> what she'd been doing you know i hope she won't mind me telling this story but, but what she'd been doing was was washing these cheeses with salt water which is the one thing that this bacteria um called um bacterium well, Brevibacterium linens, B linens for short, loves salt water. So, of course, she thought she was trying to get rid of this bacteria, and in fact, she was encouraging it. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, that was the formation of Red Hawk, the original formation of Red Hawk, which, of course, now is one of their biggest sellers. It's and an amazing cheese. It is. But what we subsequently found out, I mean, there I was thinking, uh oh, these Stiltons are all. You know, riff- responsible for a whole bunch of trouble but actually later we found out i can't remember quite how now but that there's a natural strain of this bacteria which comes down the coast at a certain time of year so essentially it was in the mm-hmm. microflora in the in the atmosphere and maybe the stiltons gave it a shove i don't know but i like was, to think yeah. that the stiltons yeah. gave it a shove yeah. <laughs> sort of colonization of a different sort is yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly oh well thank you so much kate for yes being on the show it's uh it's, it's fun been a long time in the making yeah. and i'm so happy that <laughs> yeah. uh, we got you down here in the studio well, thank you for having me yes and um well we'll definitely hopefully you'll be back with us hopefully you'll you'll be willing to take the trip back down to brooklyn if i play my cards right yeah <laughs> <laughs> well um thank you everyone for listening in we'll be back next monday with another episode of cutting the curd and uh till then stay cheesy <laughs> You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Anne Saxelby. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.